we have to continue to deliver for the American people, but we have to protect the rights of folks as well, and we have to deliver democracy. Welcome to How We Win. All over the country, people are doing extraordinary things. We're giving you the tools that you need to make a difference right now. We don't agonize, we organize. We've won some battles, but we still have more work to do. I'm so excited. Joining us today is DNC Chairman Jamie Harrison. Many of you supported Jamie in his historic attempt to unseat Lindsey Graham and serve as U.S. Senator from South Carolina. Now he's helming the DNC and working to build a new generation of Democratic electeds and activists. He's going to share his strategy with us and most importantly, of course, how we can all make an impact. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And And this this is How How We Win. Win. I'm so excited to hear from Jamie Harrison. Mm -hmm. I've been wanting to get him on the show. I wanted to get him uh, when he was running for Senate. Uh, A little busy then. He was, yeah, he was busy. Um, Not that he's not busy now running the DNC, but last week we heard Swing Left's 10-year plan. Uh, Mm -hmm. And uh, and so now we get to hear how we're aligned with that, what the DNC's plans are, and all things uh, Jamie Harrison. I can't wait for this interview. Really looking forward to hearing about the plans for the future. But first, let's talk about what's going on right now. Yes. It's infrastructure week again. <laughs> yeah, it is. It, I think it really is infrastructure week. Um, we have two plans. One that is a bipartisan plan that we hope to get passed uh, in tandem with the American Families Plan uh, that we hope to pass through reconciliation even with Mitch McConnell trying to block things, um, it's still looking like some of this will get done and it's desperately needed. First of all, it's going to create jobs, which is obviously hugely important right now, good paying jobs. Mm -hmm. And um, we desperately need repairs to roads, bridges, um, public transportation. There are still lead pipes in this country that are sending water into schools. And it's about time that we replace those Um, And then we're also looking at things for the future, like clean energy. So important, Bill, that's going to make a massive difference um, nationwide, both for the infrastructure as well as economically. Important that we actually get some historic investment in our infrastructure, which we need now that we're uh, now that we're like we haven't been facing this for years, but we're really in the middle of a severe climate crisis with record heat in the Pacific Northwest and all over our country. And uh, mm-hmm. shout out to our friends who are who are trying to stay cool and and deal with the severe weather. I hope everyone is doing okay. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm particularly concerned living in a place that just experienced a massive power grid failure that really uh, not only just made a lot of people really uncomfortable, but was actually dangerous for for quite a few people. Um, This is what happens when we don't update our infrastructure. And, you know, as all of these buildings and cars and, and what have you are moving towards cleaner energy, we actually don't have the infrastructure to support all of that. I think California is getting like an entire fleet of 
electric vehicles, like the government, you know, government vehicles. Right. Uh, who can charge all of those? <laughs> <laughs> That's a fair <laughs> point. In the summer, um, that that infrastructure doesn't exist. So let's 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 step it. Let's step into the modern world. Update the infrastructure. I'm grateful that we have an administration that is not rolling back regulations on companies to make it easier for them to pollute, but um, is is actually taking this seriously. And we're actually seeing the Paris Climate Accord rejoining that. Uh, we're mm-hmm. seeing commitments from uh, cities, from other countries, and from corporations to get to um, carbon neutral by 2050, if not sooner. You know, we'll see how serious, you know, we need to make sure that especially those corporations are taking that seriously. But, you know, there's there's a little hope there that that we're moving in the right direction with this administration on climate. But we clearly have a lot of work to do. Mm-hmm. Um, s- since you mentioned the, the previous administration. Yes. L- let's <laughs> let's take a, a quick ride to Trump country. Do we have to? Just, I don't know. A place that ex- seems to exist only in certain people's minds. Can you put in some like Twilight, Twilight Zone, Zone music? Or... Yeah. <laughs> so I just wanted to share a quote. Trump had a, had a rally, and mm-hmm. I, you know I don't want to talk about uh, about that. I want to talk about where the people who attended the rally where their heads were at. This quote that I found from from somebody at, at a rally. Um, this is on BuzzFeed News. Says. Um, Jesus Christ would have to come down and tell me that Biden won before I would ever believe it, said a Donald Trump supporter at the former president's first rally of 2021, which was this past Saturday in Ohio. So a poll um, back in May found that half of Republicans think the election was rigged. 53% of them think that Trump is the actual president. Mm. Numbers are weird, but okay. Um <laughs> And I bring this up just to remind us that there is no reasoning with some of these folks. Right. You, we're we're not Jesus. And listen, if <laughs> Jesus comes back, I guarantee you he's not going to be talking about Donald Trump's election. Um, but I don't think that that Trump supporter <laughs> would believe it, even if Jesus came down and said, "Hey, I'm Jesus, and Biden did win the election." I think his I think his faith would be his or her faith would be deeply shaken by that moment. Yeah, I, I do want to see that short film, but in the meantime, <laughs> before before that's made, it's just a reminder on who we have to focus on as we're doing work in the coming months and years to. Um, regain some sanity in our country, there is going to be a segment of the population that's just not open to having conversations with us. And our focus has to be on that segment of the population that is interested in improving their communities in our country and is willing to do the work, whether it's knock on doors with us or turn out and vote or, you know, talk to talk to their friends and neighbors about what's important to all of us. So that's what we focus on, even as the media and Twitter and whoever are focusing on um, these questionable opinions that seem to still be floating around out there. Yeah. I mean, they're not opinions. They're uh, just 
crazy uh, delusions. They're grifts, really. I mean, the my pillow guy and these former Trump officials are making so much money. Oh my gosh, off of these yes. rallies, and they're selling, you know, making these movies that they're streaming and charging like you know That's sixty right. bucks for the download of the movie. They're making millions on that. Trump himself is even upset with the amount of money that his former colleagues are uh, are making on his name and mm-hmm. with, with his crowd. He doesn't like it. He doesn't like it when anyone else makes money or gets attention from from his stuff. So, The grift is for the Trumps only. The grift is for the Trumps only. And, uh, you know, that's that's what this is. And, and sadly, like, you know, it, it reinforces what we're doing here. There is such an all-out blitz on the truth that happens with the right-wing media, especially in these alternative spaces like podcasts. And that's why it's so important that mm. we uh, amplify truth-tellers um, because the algorithm rewards engagement, whether it's positive or negative. So these right-wing conspiracy theories just keep getting juiced up in the social media and the alternative media landscape. So it's important that uh, that we support the voices that are telling the truth and are helping make people's lives better and not trying to uh, sell them a $25 t-shirt and a $60 download of some bullshit documentary about how the <laughs> the, the election was mm-hmm. a farce. And I mean, the, and the overarching thing there is how dangerous and scary this is because they, you know, in their uh, grifting, are creating opportunities for more violence and more conflict from from people who just will not have their opinions moved, even by Jesus Christ himself. So, I mean, you have to, you, you raise the, the, the great point that this is really about, this is really about money and the people who are true believers are being scammed. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the only thing we can do is feel sorry for them and, and move on to yeah. to the next thing. They all know it's bogus. Bill Barr, remember uh, mm-hmm. remember him? Trump's lapdog oh, yeah. attorney general. He even said it was bullshit. Those are his words. Mm-hmm. Uh, and resigned because of Trump's efforts to denigrate the results of the election. So... They know. They're making money off of this. It's a grift, and it's having horrible, damaging effects to our democracy that we as activists and volunteers need to overcome. Yeah. Um, so the, the the bar quote comes from an Atlantic article previewing Jonathan Carl's book about the Trump yeah. administration. And one of the other interesting things that came out about this that really drove Trump crazy this week was that McConnell was encouraging Barr to publicly say – no, the election was not fraudulent. Donald Trump did not win the election because McConnell felt that he couldn't say it himself because he needed the president at the time, Trump, to stay in line so that they could um, try to win those two Senate seats in Georgia right. the, um, that, that the Republicans ended up losing. He wanted that narrative that, um, that the Senate needs to be a check on Biden. You know, you know, if we have a Democrat in the White House, we need to hold the Senate. Yeah, so so he you know he sold his soul to the devil, and he, I mean he's a demon anyway, but he he got very very little out of that. All right, so uh, those are our two asshats of the week. Now it's time for our hero of the week. The adults are disappointing us this week, so let's <laughs> talk about the kids. <laughs> That's right. Our hero of the week is um, and. We're getting past 
graduation, but once again, point of privilege, since I have a, a recent <laughs> high school graduate, uh, I've been getting very misty over all of the commencement events. Were you just going around watching commencement speeches Pretty to much. Re- relive that moment from a few weeks ago? <laughs> I'm so proud of my daughter. That's very sweet. It was so it's exciting. So sweet. <laughs> um, but uh, our hero of the week is Bryce Dersham, who is a gay New Jersey high school valedictorian who had his freaking microphone cut off in the middle of his graduation speech by one of the school officials, I think it was the dean, uh, who objected to the content of his unapproved speech. Now, his speech was uh, about mental illness, mental health. Uh, It addressed how difficult it was for kids in 2020 during the pandemic. And it also addressed his you know, how difficult it was for him coming out uh, and the the depression mm-hmm. that he felt through that. And um, it was a very honest and uh, really, really hopeful, helpful speech. But he's our hero because literally the microphone was cut off. They unplugged the mic mm-hmm. from him and took the speech right off the lectern walked away and someone else came over and handed him the mic and he'd been working on the speech for a long time so he kind of had it memorized so he continued on with this very vulnerable uh, and important speech and here's a piece of it i would like to share what i believe is the most important thing i have learned at eastern you are not alone in your fight with the belief of those around you you never have to suffer in silence If you have struggled or will struggle, I believe you. And I hope you will believe others too. From a formerly suicidal, formerly anorexic queer, the list goes on for me and for all of us. Believe me that one person's belief can save a life. Um, I cannot imagine my reaction if someone did that to my child. Oh, yeah. And, and... Don't school administrators know by now that if they do something like cut the mic on someone Uh, or take their speech away, it's only going to make it go viral. So instead of just that one commencement hearing this speech, the entire world is going to hear it. It's going to be shared all over social media. I mean, uh, whoever that guy was. Thank you for for pulling the plug on his speech because I probably wouldn't have heard about it and so many people wouldn't have heard about that if he hadn't done that. So thanks for amplifying Bryce Dersham's work. Congratulations, Bryce, and thank you for, for speaking up. That must have been unbelievably hard. Now let's talk about our reasons for hope. Um, my reason for hope this week is actually very related to to our hero of the week, um, uh, and it's the the fact that uh, like we're in the last week of of Pride Pride Month. Yep. Um, Pride returned to the White House. Um, the Trump administration didn't really have any Pride events during the the four four times Trump was in office during Pride. Right. Um, but the Biden administration. Um, celebrated it this month and invited 16-year-old activist and author Ashton Mota to help out. And he had a, a very powerful message for President Biden. I want to thank President Biden for the protections his administration has put in place for LGBTQ plus people nationwide. 
While we know there's work to be done, these efforts are deeply meaningful to so many young people like me. President Biden has always stood up for his family, and I know he'll always stand up for my family too. Mr. President, thank you for having our back. Thank you to, to Ashton and to the Bidens for, for bringing pride back to the White House and making us all proud to be a diverse and welcoming country. Yeah. Um, what's your reason for hope this week? So my reason for hope, you know, we every week have been talking about the historic and uh, terrible attack on voting rights that's happening all over our country. Uh, we've been very frustrated with the Senate's inability to pass the For the People Act to help protect voting rights. Uh, so my reason for hope is Merrick Garland. Speaking of attorney generals, we were talking about Bill Barr earlier. Now we get to talk about Merrick Garland, who a lot of us have been watching and wondering what the Justice Department was going to do, how they were going to intervene in these clearly civil rights issues um, mm -hmm. and and other otherwise. And, you know, justice takes longer than activists would like. You know, we, you know, what do we want? We want this. When do we want it? We want it now. now. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Insert the blank for what the this is. But we always want it right now. Right. Um, and it is our job as activists <laughs> to be pushing for it right now, to be pushing for the change that we need right now. But the Justice Department rarely works that way. And, um, and so uh, the, the Justice Department's commitment and Merrick Garland's comments about uh, suing Georgia, and, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's going to be uh, a precedent set now for a lot of other uh, actions against, you know, we just saw some new voting rights uh, legislation proposed um, that is some of the worst voter ID laws, I think, ever that require mm -hmm. a signature and voter ID to, uh, to be able to vote in person. Um, that's going to be challenged now. We, we have a Justice Department who is um, going to be pushing back on these, these laws. And so that gives me hope because uh, we're not alone in this struggle. And we still need to be f focused on what we can do to get the For the People Act. And we definitely need to be focused on how we organize on the ground to educate voters, no matter what the mm -hmm. restrictions are for voting, to make sure that they show up to the polls. But Merrick Garland is giving me hope this week. All right. A justice department that's interested in justice. I know. Weird. Uh, administration that's interested in infrastructure and, and, uh, and climate science and Justice Department interested in justice. It's the Congress that wants people to actually vote. <laughs> <It's> crazy. <laughs> yeah. Who knew? So speaking of getting into action, helping voters, let's talk about this week's to-do list. Well, we've got a weekend of action that's coming up soon, and it's going to be all about Virginia. That's right. We talked about it last week. This is still our call to action for you this week because we want you to sign up. We want you to find an event near you. Go to swingleft.org. Attend a weekend of action event. The weekend of action is July 10th and 11th. Um, you know what it's going to include? Canvassing <laughs> events. Oh, that's right. If you live in Virginia or near Virginia, uh, you're gonna get to you're gonna get to do some in person 
uh, stuff. This is our first return to some in-person voter contact that some of our groups are hosting. It's very exciting. If you don't live in or, in or around Virginia, of course, there's phone banks and, um, and other ways to get involved. Uh, Vote Forward has tons of Virginia letters that need to be adopted, so you can write letters with your groups. There's a lot of different opportunities to get involved if you're living outside the Virginia area. But in-state, in-person canvassing after being fully virtual since March 2020. This is a big deal. It's going to be the the door knocking, the phone banking, the letter writing all at once for the first time in ages. This is great. Yeah. So sign up, sign up, please, and uh, let's let's make this a huge blowout. Let's show them Republicans what organizing looks like early, and um, and let's hold Virginia. All right. Up next, we have this incredible interview where um, we're going to talk not just about what we can do in the immediate future uh, for our weekend of action, but even beyond that, what and what the Democratic National Committee has in the works. Jamie Harrison needs no introduction to our listeners. He's the current chairman of the Democratic National Committee. Jamie ran for the Senate in South Carolina against incumbent Senator Lindsey Graham in the 2020 election and previously served as the chair of the South Carolina Democratic Party. Chair Harrison, thank you so much for being here with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. (laughs) It's great to have you here. Before we get started, I just want to say I've been getting your texts, and I'm sorry I haven't responded yet, but I knew we'd be talking, so. (laughs) Well, you know the funny thing when I was running for the U.S. Senate, they had had Jamie Harrison memes out that uh, there was one that was so funny that if you go into the bathroom and go to the mirror and you say my name three times, I would pop out. (laughs) Or... Uh, there was another one that said, uh, you know, dude, you better call your girlfriend before Jamie Harrison does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Those we, are good. I always wonder how people feel about being memed. Did you feel like you'd, you, I'm here, I've made it? Yeah. yeah you know, it, it's kind of funny. I, I mean, there were all types of moments in that race. I think when we had the plexiglass and um, mm-hmm. and, and then they ended up using a plexiglass for the vice presidential right. debate. Uh, you know, it, it was a lot of fun. I, I enjoyed every second of it other than the ending, but, uh, yeah. but it was a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, that was heartbreaking. Um, but we have to say that no Democrat has won a statewide election in South Carolina since 2006. And you ran one of the best, fiercest campaigns that we've seen. What did that race teach you about the importance of, you know, going hard everywhere, even when you have a, a seemingly un- insurmountable gap? Yeah. Listen, we had Lindsey Graham on the ropes. Mm-hmm. I mean, he yeah. was literally on the ropes when you got a man who's the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, uh, ran for president, you know, been in the Senate for, you know, in, in Washington, D.C. for 20 plus years. Right. And he's going on TV each and every night, basically in tears saying, oh, they're <laughs> killing me down here. Please send me a dollar or whatever. Uh, it, it, it shows that he understood that this race was close. I mean, what happened for us was uh, the death of Justice Ginsburg. 
that was when that happened. It, I, I saw the momentum. It was, I mean, we tried to deny it, um, but it was like going 75 miles per hour and you hit a brick wall hmm. because this gave Lindsey Graham an opportunity uh, as the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Mm-hmm. to really galvanize the, the far right in the state because he was able to deliver this very right-wing justice to the Supreme Court and yeah. allow those folks to, to come home and they supported him and, and Donald Trump. Um, but what it demonstrated to us, I mean, listen, we ended up getting 1.1 million votes in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Uh, before my race, no Democrat had ever gotten over 850,000 votes. And that was wow. Barack Obama uh, in 2008. And so uh, we were able to put, uh, you know, 1.1 million cracks in that, that uh, glass ceiling here mm-hmm. in South Carolina. And I believe that the potential is here, similar to how Stacey Abrams loss really helped to galvanize people in Georgia, how uh, I think Beto's loss helped to mm-hmm. really start to pull people together in Texas. I think uh, my race is doing the same type of thing in South Carolina. And so we have a governor's race coming up uh, and folks are all in. Uh, they they want to change the leadership we have in the state. And I'm going to do everything I can to help them do that. Well, you really galvanized activists, not just from mm-hmm. South Carolina, but from all over the country to engage in your race in a huge way. And it was obviously a combination of being uh, a really talented, charismatic candidate uh, fighting against uh, an incumbent that everyone hates a whole lot. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Not to forget, there was a time in our politics when Lindsey Graham was the worst. You know, he got overshadowed a little bit by Trump, but um, he he really used to be the worst. Um, Maybe he still is. But anyway, uh, (laughs) you, you broke U.S. Senate campaign fundraising records by raising $109 million and saw this unprecedented engagement from activists all over the country. How did that experience inform how you think about grassroots volunteers and how we can all work together going forward? Yeah, you know, listen, it's amazing. Actually, uh, it's uh, even crazier to say in the end, in the end goal, I ended up raising 133 million and Lindsay raised 109. Oh, wow. Um, So, uh, I mean, it was, it was that's what happens when you get your research from wikipedia so my oh no no i mean but listen (laughs) in the end in the end of the day it was just unbelievable and on top of that you know mitch mcconnell ended up and Lindsay's super PAC added another 30 almost 40 million dollars in the last little bit so uh they flooded me out even though we raised all that money Mm -hmm. because they all came in the very last bit but the amazing thing for me was that our money wasn't from the Sheldon Adelsons of the world where they're writing half a million dollar checks or a million dollar checks. This was moms and pops and uncles mm-hmm. and aunts and cousins writing $27 a person. Mm-hmm. I went from having an email list when I first launched my bid. Uh, uh, it was a, a committee in February of 2019. We had 100 people on my email list and I ended up with almost 6 million. Wow. Uh, wow. And I mean, the number of contributions got to the point where it was, it took, I mean, a whole week to process some yeah. of the stuff. Um, just the sheer volume of people who were interested in this race and, uh, and wanted to be supportive of us. 
So I believe that the future is in grassroots funding. Uh, we see it right now, even at the DNC. We are breaking our previous records every month in terms of grassroots donations that are coming to the DNC. And, and it's because we, we are investing in those lists. Um, we're talking to folks on an individual basis about what we're doing, and they're interested in investing in that for the long term. Um, and, you know, now how does this impact campaigning going forward? You know, I, 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 one of the things I wonder about, is it just on the top rung races? Is it just on the races where you have, you know, this villain and you got, you know, somebody who can be the hero, right? Are those just the races in which th those type of resources can flow? Or can we see that type of grassroots funding actually have a dramatic impact on, on the local level? You're running mm -hmm. for the state house. Um, we, we've seen it on the top races. We have not seen it yet on the, the smaller localized races. But uh, I do think it is the future of, of funding for campaigns going forward. Yeah, we need a little a trickle down with the with the yes. grassroots with the grassroots donors because that's so important to have the grassroots uh, funds. And I can tell you, even on my race, one of the things that we did is we got money in. You know, I transferred millions of dollars to the state parties so that they could then work with some of our grassroots um, folks. I think our state party um took some of the money that we uh we did to benefit congressional candidates to benefit state house and state senate candidates mm -hmm. as well um because i wanted to be helpful uh you know there was only so much that i could do within the law but the state party could do a lot unencumbered from us so that's really important and i hope candidates who are running on the top of ticket understand that they have an obligation not just for their own campaigns but if they can, to they have an obligation of working with some of the down ballot as well, doing all that they can to help those candidates thrive, get their message out, um, uh, talk to the voters, because that's a really important component. It's so it important. really is. And, and a lot of, of people with these big email lists um, don't like to share them um, because I, I think people don't realize when you give up your email, that's so valuable. Um, and it kind of gets, you know, traded around a, a little bit, uh, which is how you end up on multiple lists. But it really is hard if you are a down ballot candidate to grow your list um, and get access to the folks that are, you know, interested in supporting specific candidates. But these grassroots donors are really interested in a smart strategy to to improve the entire community. So I applaud you for being open with, with, with your contacts. Yeah. I'll add um, to that also really quickly that we know uh, reverse coattails works too. So when- Yes, uh, that's exactly right. Look yeah. at Virginia 20, what was it? Virginia uh, 2017. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I mean, listen, you know, uh, Governor Northam, I mean, a nice guy, but like, is like watching paint dry, right? So folks <laughs> 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 are- for, it wasn't like, oh, my God. Terry McAuliffe, like, way more charismatic, right? Exactly. <laughs> um, but, but it was really the state house folks who generated so – those candidates who were running for state house that cycle who generated so much energy. And I really mm -hmm. think they they helped float that entire top of the ticket, mm. the governor, lieutenant governor, and uh, the, the attorney general. Yeah. And so it's just important that people, and this is the thing that, I, the message that I have to the state party chairs, 
if you got statewide races uh, this cycle, try to find folks to run on the ballot on the down ticket because yeah. that will help your state house. What you can do as a state party, that will help the top of the ticket more so than probably anything else you do is to help recruit and find people to run on the down ballot. And so uh, Virginia has done a great job of doing that mm -hmm. over the years. And I think it's a, a, a terrific model for state parties around the country. That's great. Since we're talking about strategy, let's talk about the DNC. Um, can you, for, for our listeners who may not have interacted with the DNC before, can you give us a little bit of a primer and then yeah. talk about the, the, the strategy that you have as chair moving forward? Well, you, you know, there are a lot of myths about the DNC and I, I, I found that out over the years. There are some people who think that the, the sun rises and sets, uh, by the DNC chair and, and what, Folks, that is not the case. You're giving us a whole lot more authority and power than we actually have. Everything bad is your fault. Everything oh, good everything. is someone else did, right? Yeah, exactly right. It's like, well, the DNC went in and endorsed in this campaign for uh, local office or, you know, my state house race. No, the DNC didn't do that. Uh, maybe your state party did. Maybe your county party did, but the DNC didn't. Uh, but everything that they attribute to the party in general, they think the DNC controls, and that just isn't the case. The way that I, I say you think about this is that the DNC's real, the, the, the world that the DNC really controls is the presidential world, mm. right? Uh, when you think about the presidential primary process and how that goes uh, along, the DNC works in coordination and in conjunction with the state parties to really uh, put on the presidential primaries, from the debates uh, to the primaries and caucuses themselves. And, and it's just the logistics, folks. It's, you know, we, we're not, you know, doing all of the other things that people like to attribute. It's, it, they create the platform. And so it's the DNC, when I think about candidate recruitment, for me, the thing that I'm most responsible for is making sure that we have a Democratic candidate who is our nominee for the President of the United States. Mm -hmm. When you think about all these other races that you have to fill, senators, members of Congress, uh, mayors, uh, city council, state house folks, there are organizations that we call sister organizations within the democratic ecosystem that more in, in, uh, has that in their portfolio in terms of primary jurisdiction. The place where most of candidate recruitment happens is the state party. Mm -hmm. The state party is the nexus. It's like the collect collective tissue of of this 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 entity, right? Because they do everything. They do local and national, and they do it all. And so, uh, what the DNC does is support the state parties in their efforts to recruit candidates, to to have the resources to run their operations, uh, to do trainings, uh, to help identify uh, talent within the state. And so we are more in a supportive role to our state parties than anything. Mm -hmm. um, now, historically, the DNC has not always been great in its supportive role of the state parties. And it's part of the reason why we have the challenges that we are experiencing right now. Um, during the Obama administration, uh, you know, the state parties did not have as much support from the DNC. Um, but we have now, you know, since... Tom Perez, and now with me, we've changed that. I just recently announced the largest ever investment in state parties 
ever in the DNC. $23 million going to our state parties, where we're increasing the amount, monthly amount that we're sending there. Uh, we've created a red state fund for 19 states who qualify as red states so that there's extra grants and programs that they can run. Um, so we're doing as much as we possibly can to be supportive of our state parties. Because again, if you have a strong state party, you can win a race. If you don't have a strong state party, it becomes increasingly more difficult for you to win your race, and particularly in red and, and battleground state. So uh, you just talked about this incredible early investment of money that uh, you are putting out there for state parties and for local infrastructure. But you also said that you're focused on presidential, you know, building towards the presidential, which is in 2024, right? So why is it so important to start investing this kind of money early? Well, not only am I thinking about, you know, I'm thinking about the midterms because, you know, Joe Biden needs to have majority in the House and Senate. We need to pick up some legislatures so that we can stop these voter suppression efforts and all these other things that we see percolating in the states. Uh, we need to win some governor's mansions. We need to pick up attorney generals and lieutenant governors and secretaries of state. All of those entities are really, really important. But the way that I look at this is that I am not just thinking about the cycle or the next cycle, but I'm thinking about the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. What do we want the Democratic Party to, to, to look like and to be, where do we want to be competitive in 10 years from now? Because the problems that we are experiencing right now, those seeds for the problems that we are, we're dealing with, we're playing it 10 years ago, right? Because of the lack of investment in infrastructure in state parties. That, mean that, that meant that the state parties were weak. That meant that they didn't win the races on the local level, the state house races, the, uh, the city council races, the mayoral races, the gubernatorial races. And as a result, we are now living in the legacy of that lack of investment. And so when I think about my role as chair, I want, and my thought is, what do I want my legacy to be, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, 10 years from now, people are going to be living under what I helped to establish, good or bad. And it's important that we build a strong foundation. I want to see the next Georgia, the next Arizona. And I understand that those coming up with states like that don't happen overnight. You, You actually have to work on it. You have to build the infrastructure. And so that's what, what we're really focused on right now, building an infrastructure that then allows us to win midterms uh, and buck history, then allows us to win re-election for President Biden and Vice President Harris in 2024, but uh, allows us ultimately to have folks in office who will deliver for the American people. Um, I think I think I've heard you say before that the DNC is going back to a 50 state, seven territory strategy. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? Yes. So, you know, Howard Dean, this whole idea really um, started with Howard Dean back, uh, I think it was 1996, actually. Uh, Was it 96? No, 2006. Yes, 2006. Right, Right. When Howard Dean became chair. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, part of his election, he worked uh, and got the support of state parties because he talked about a 50 state, seven territory strategy where he would put uh, DNC national resources into state parties uh, so that they can really start to do the organizing that needed to happen on the ground. 
Remember, when Howard Dean became chair, we had just lost a presidential election in 2004. And so we were in the mi minority uh, in the House, the Senate, and the White House. So we didn't control any of that. And so this was a radical, a new approach. Uh, you know, I, I remember Rahm Emanuel just basically, you know, he and I think it was Lita Schumer at the time went to Howard Dean, asked for $5 million of some amount of money. And, and Rahm was like, you know, just write the damn check, right? <laughs> uh, and Howard Dean said, no. I'm going to focus. I'm pretty sure on he didn't say damn. Rom Rom does use colorful language. He may have yes, said something more than damn. <laughs> yes, and I'm sure he said something even more colorful than that. <laughs> um, but Howard Dean was very committed to the state parties, hmm. uh, and in the end, we won in 2006. Why, why? Why did we win? I think we won partly because you know, listen, Rom and the speaker and my former boss did it. You know, Jim Clyburn and a number of others, mm -hmm. Schumer all did a great job and we were able as a collective to win. But I really think you got to give credit to the 2006 investment in state parties because we won in races that were not targeted DCCC races. Mm -hmm. I remember winning in Kansas, Nancy Borders race. And I can tell you, Rom didn't put any money in Kansas, uh, but Howard Dean did. Uh, and he put it in the state party and he uh, made sure that they were invested in terms of boots on the ground. Uh, and I think that laid the foundation for the wins in 2006, but also the wins in 2008. Now, what happened in 2008? After Barack Obama won, and we had our largest, uh, uh, very, very large uh, growth in uh, Democrats in the House and the Senate, and we got to 60 senators in, I don't know if people remember this, 60 senators in the U.S. Senate mm. uh, and control of the White House. Folks, what would I give to, to <laughs> yeah. go back to that day, right? Don't make me cry, Jamie. Don't make oh me cry. Oh, my God. <laughs> right? You, you think about the lost opportunity to do everything that we ever thought humanly yeah. possible, but we didn't take advantage of. <laughs> but nonetheless, <laughs> that's a, for a whole nother book and another story. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, but after that 2008 race, we sort of got drunk off the fact that we had this control in the House and the Senate and White House. And then we decided, well, we don't need to do that, you know, that 50 state strategy thing anymore. So let's just turn off the money, the spigot for, for uh, the 50 state strategy. So the money that was gone went almost down to nothing. Uh, and as a result, we started losing in state house races and we started losing governor's races. Uh, then we started losing the redistricting process and, and we lost congressional races. And we got into the majority and the minority of the House and the Senate, and then right. we lost the White House. Right. So we were right back where we started before in 2004. We can't, we've read that story. Hmm. We read it one time. We don't need to read it again. We have to focus on rebuilding our party and our party infrastructure. And so the 50 state strategy is investing in our state parties and uh, investing in the talent there. Uh, making sure that they're strong, that they can operate, uh, and that uh, uh, and that they can do all of the things that only state parties can do. That's so great. And of course, mm -hmm. you know, Republicans have invested in state parties for years, right. and and yeah, and took advantage of of what you just said of, of us not looking there and and building their strength in these state parties. And 
Uh, you were kind enough to join our Swing Left strategy call last week um, as we were talking about our 10-year plan for our short-term, medium-term, and, and long-term goals. It sound yes. like, sound like they align very well with what you have in mind. So, Oh, I mean, just absolutely incredible. I just love uh, it, your 10-year plan and what you all are thinking and, and your structure. I mean, uh, the, the point about we must move from resistance to persistence. Which is so so important. We we have to do all that we can to to defend and strengthen our democracy, and that's really really important. Um, but we we have to, as I tell people all the time, that D behind me not only stands for Democrats, but it stands for deliver. Hmm. We have to continue to deliver for the American people, right. uh, and that that is in, in all of its form. You know, we have to deliver services. We have to deliver. Uh, but we have to protect the rights of folks as well, and we have to deliver democracy. And so, um, you know, you guys are, are so right on point, and I, I'm, I was so happy to participate and to see the framework that you have uh, moving forward. Well, this has been an incredibly forward-looking conversation, so mm -hmm. I want to wrap up by asking you uh, what gives you the most hope for the future? Hmm. Hope is an important part of my life. It has always been. I often say, you know, here in South Carolina, my our motto is, while I breathe, I hope. Mm -hmm. um, and so in essence, you know, you're tying, uh, you know, life itself to this little notion of hope, right? Mm -hmm. I um, The thing that has given so, much, so many of us hope is our right to vote. Mm -hmm. um, Think about because 80 million people went to vote in 2020, how life has changed just over the course of the, few, the past few months. Mm -hmm. I mean, the hundreds of millions of vaccinations that have been issued as a result, uh, that people were able to, who were on, who were desperate for help, for a helping hand, uh, because financially they were wrecked. Uh, they were in an awful situation. Joe Biden and Democrats taking control in the House and Senate, put money in their pockets. I mean, just next month, uh, there will be a lot of families, millions of families across this country who will get a child tax credit, $250 to $300 per child. You know, I was one of those poor kids um, when, you know, August comes up and the school starts back in, in the South. When my, you know, I remember times when my mom struggled to get school supplies and clothes for me. Well, just think about this August. Now, money that folks had no idea, many had no idea was coming, it's now going to be there to help them buy school supplies and clothes for the kids to start school in August and September. That's a big deal. And that only happened. It only happened because people in November of 2020, and again, in January in Georgia, mm -hmm. went to vote. So I like to say, you know, I'm changing South Carolina's motto and adopting it at the DNC. It's not while I breathe, I hope. While I breathe, I vote. Mm -hmm. Because that is what brings hope to so many communities around this country. Because when we put Democrats in office, they deliver for the people in this nation. It ain't always easy. Uh, as we often see right now with slim majorities, it, it can be very difficult. Mm -hmm. Right. But we still do all that we can to make the lives of the American people better. 
and that's why it's so important for you all uh, at Swing Left, for us at the Democratic Party, to do all that we can to protect uh, that vote, because in essence, that's protecting the hope that people have, that things will be better for them and their families and their communities. Oh, what a great conversation. I wish we could keep going. Um, but I know you've got a lot of work to do to implement this plan. And uh, and I know I speak for our listeners when we say how excited we are for your leadership and to be in this fight alongside you. So, uh, Jamie Harrison, thank you so much for joining us today. Stephen Mariah, thank you for having me and best of luck. for being with us today. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved and stay engaged. How are you staying engaged this year? We want to hear from you. Tweet to us at bluesboysteve and at mariah underscore craven. Or you can send us an email at podcast at swingleft.org and let us know what's on your mind. And don't forget, you can subscribe, rate, and leave a review for this podcast on Apple or wherever you listen to your pods and let everyone know that you are part of the How We Win community. Share our show on social media. Check out our page at swingleft.org slash podcast. And of course, you can sign up to volunteer there. Remember that weekend of action. That's right. This is really important. We know that a lot of you guys, if you're listening to this part of the podcast, like the very end of the <laughs> podcast, then you Hello. are really a super fan. You are really... Uh, Just going to bring every word out. <laughs> you're a supporter of the podcast. So if you're that person and you have a good social media following, we want you to be a influencer for us and, and help us build this movement. So please do share us. And also have a happy and safe 4th of July weekend. We appreciate you being here. And we'll be back with some more next Wednesday. Happy 4th.